This episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast was recorded live on location, thanks to Hope & Co in Hamilton on Gundamara country. We'd like to extend our respects to the traditional owners for your care of the land, air and water, and recognise the importance of storytelling to connect people and place. Our next guest is just an absolutely incredible person. She's a self-confessed coffee snob, adventure racing, dog-loving mother of two, and someone I feel really lucky to sit down with on Gundamara country, not too far from the turf that she grew up on in Western Victoria. Anna Spear has built her reputation as a business leader at the forefront of industry innovation. Her ability to lead teams and implement change has seen her as the CEO of Auctions Plus, Chief Operations Officer of Australian Agricultural Company, and in her current role today as the CEO of Greenstock, the red meat side of Woolworths, where she's responsible for the Woolies Network's supply of beef, lamb and pork. But there's a fair bit of the Anna Spears story that I certainly didn't know. In this chat, we go beyond the day-to-day to understand more about the journey, the role of mentors, the importance of communication, professional development through the Australian Rural Leadership Program, what was happening in the background at Woolies during the pandemic, and so much more. This is the story of the kid from Pony Club, to ring her in the top end, to today being unashamedly Anna. Enjoy the chat. I feel like I've known you for a long time, but I feel like I've probably followed you more than I've actually known you. And your career is incredible. So I'm excited to sit down and chat with you today about everything you've done, but more so trying to uncover what it is that drives you, why you're involved in agriculture and what are some of the opportunities and things that you've done. So welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Oh, thanks, Ollie. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. And um, oh, it's exciting to see what we'll unpack. Um, I probably don't really know what I'm going to say today, but um, yeah, happy to be sharing with you and the broader team a bit about what I've been doing. And I think um, for us, like the last time I saw you, 12 months ago, Beef Australia, since then you've had another kid there's been a bit happening in your life new job what's been happening over the last 12 months it has been a little bit of a whirlwind um so I saw you at beef I think I was 12 or 13 weeks pregnant crook as a dog um devastating state to be in for beef week um I go off red meat when I'm pregnant and so um not the ideal place to be asking for a vegetarian meal and then yeah that was my last week at AACO uh wonderful week to finish on pretty special opportunity to get to do that with Hugh and the team there and then 12 uh, it was four weeks off and then headed off to the new job with Greenstock um so a little bit has happened I've as you said, I had um, my second child, Molly, um, in November. She's a little dream boat, thank God. We had COVID ravage our supply chains. And as you all probably saw, we were a little bit short in the pork, beef and lamb space on shelf in the supers um, alongside a lot of other products. And I've been learning through leaning and drinking from the fire hose, learning <laughs> about the broader Woolworths ecosystem and, and what this green stock business was all about. There's going to be plenty to unpack here. The other thing, so you've reminded me, and I was chatting to Ed Govins the other day, and what did you think of his coffees that he was making? Oh, I thought they were sensational. Did you? Yeah, oh, yeah. I he thought he did you a said great they, were, they were average. <laughs> <laughs> I am a little bit of a coffee snob, um, <laughs> although 
I am now on the uh, long black with hot milk on the side, watching the weight, trying to get back in shape a little bit. And I'll tell you what, they're not as good as those milky lattes that I enjoy. And you said getting back in shape so you can do some, what was that, adventure racing? Yeah, so it's been, it's a bit, you know, when, when you have kids, you sort of lose your body a little bit and it's been nice to sort of start building up core strength and looking at how I get back on the mountain bike and get back into adventure racing. My hubby Andrew and I really enjoy doing that together. Um, He's a little bit quicker than me. He's currently training for his next ultra marathon. So running 150 kilometres in July um, in one hit. So it's nothing for him to go off for a little 50k jog in a morning. Um, I'd love to be able to say I've done that, but I just (laughs) don't think I could commit to the training. Adventure racing alongside your husband. That'd surely, um, you'd see all kinds of people not not too many places you can hide when you're physically exhausted and mentally challenged. That's really true. I think it actually brings the best out in us. We we work as a team. I'm definitely a slow diesel engine and, and he adjusts his pace accordingly. Uh, I like to think I'm the smarts behind the navigation side of things. When I get a little bit tired or uh, hungry, he'll pump me full of a peanut butter sandwich or something like that. But it is, it's a it's a great leveller. It's also just so refreshing to get out in the bush and away from the noise, whether it's the screens or the phone calls, and, and spend some quality time together. There's also great people out there. Crazy. Tell me, we're going to jump ahead. I wanted to talk to you about your kind of well, professional development, but... Uh, you've reminded me. So you're a graduate of the ARLP and so adventure racing. I'm heading to the Kimberleys in August. What was that experience like for you? The ARLP experience was a game changer for me and I remember walking up a hill in the in the Kimberleys, tired, emotional, hungry and um, a little bit frayed from, you know, the, the activities that we'll be doing. So you're in for um, a, a wonderful experience and A guy called Russell Fisher said to me, Anna, there's a big difference between being a bad person and bad behaviour. And at that point in my life, I'd I'd recently gone through my divorce. Um, I was feeling pretty ashamed and shattered of of where I was and not really full of confidence. Um, And it was a perfect place to take that baggage off and leave it on the mountainside and and start to think about how do I move forward and lean into my values, my purpose and and what I want to be in a really well-rounded human. So ARLP was a game changer. Um, It really opened my eyes up to my behaviours and and the way I dealt with stress and pressure, some of the tools that I'd learnt from working in stock camps for a long time that needed to be put down um, and some of the opportunities um, that I had about being vulnerable and, and letting my real self come forward and not having to be really tough rumble-tumble type of person. Are you a, uh, on the disc profile, dominant person? What do you think I'd be? I'm guessing D, but I feel like somewhat analytical as well, so you might be around that. DS maybe? No, I'm an I. A big, oh, yeah. yeah, big fat I. Right in the middle? Yeah, so. I, I used to swing over into the D quite a bit, definitely results-driven, yep. um, and that's definitely an area I'm focusing on not trying to be too much of an overperformer. Um, so real people person. <laughs> yeah, massive people person. I get my energy from people and spending time with people, you know, we're here in Hamilton today and I got the opportunity to spend some time with the Rabo clients last night, just chatting with farmers about what they're doing, what we could be doing better. It gives me so much energy. That's um, incredible. Tell me, you mentioned when you're going through that experience, you were lacking confidence. The whole process is about values and understanding who you are. So 
when you lost confidence, did you lose a sense of who you are? Did you kind of know behind the scenes who Anna was and what she wanted to do? I definitely lost a sense of who I was. Um, I don't know if I ever really knew exactly who I was. I think that's something I've been working on more and more as I've evolved from a career perspective, as I've become a mother, um, and really starting to understand who do I want to be and how do I be unashamedly me and do it for the the reasons that I want to do it. Um, I have been a bit of a people pleaser over the years and really do care about what other people think and I'm trying to package that one up and shelve it a little bit and you know, lean into being vulnerable and just me. Hard place to be. I'm in a similar spot to you, I reckon, in terms of the, the eye and the wanting approvals and all of that. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's, um, it's an interesting space where you, if you're looking to others to reassure you that you're doing the right thing, um, makes it difficult when you're doing something that's transformative. And, you know, you with Humans of Agriculture, me with my new role with Greenstock, but also with pretty much all of my other career um, steps. You know, Auctions Plus was a, was a cracker of an example. If I listened to everyone that told me, why it hadn't been successful in the first year of being there, um, I would have packed my bags and gone home. Instead, you know, little steps and, and you know, self-affirmation that you're heading on the wrong path and I suppose believing in yourself, which, yeah, sometimes really tough to do. But when you get out the other side and you look back, um, they're the proudest moments of your life, I think. Mm. It's interesting because we'll get back uh, on track here in a second. But my late last year, I really lost confidence in who I was and I think... Um, Humans of Ag was going really well and it was like this little side hustle that was growing and then at work I wasn't as good as what I wanted to be. Like I knew, I was like, this is what I can do. Why can't I kind of get this out of myself? And it's it's a really interesting place when you lose confidence in yourself. It's an awful place. Yeah. And you just got to sit with it because, you know, a lot of people would look at me and think, wow, she's super confident. Um, I have great days and then I have terrible days and, you know, you ride the highs and the lows and that's why it's so important to look at the things that you, you need to be doing to balance your plate. Um, if you're over-indexing in work and not doing anything with family or nothing from a health, you know, exercise regime, y- you will flip in that direction. So it's, it's so important to think about how you balance and what you do to restore that self-assurance in yourself um you know for me meditation's been a game changer I started that about two years ago um at the beginning of COVID and I was about to um my coach at the time intimated that perhaps I was going to smash into the glass ceiling rather than smash through it (laughs) and um (laughs) you know I we we talked about what was it that I needed to be doing and it was nothing from a performance perspective. I actually needed to dial it back, dial back my intensity and start to do a bit of you know, self-management and think about how I slow down, get clear, get focused. And um, meditation's just been amazing. So I do it twice a day for 20 minutes. Um, really? First thing I do when I get out of bed in the morning, 20 minutes meditation. And if I don't do it, it you know, my day's never quite as good as what it is when I do it. Um, so tell me what else are you trying to fit into your day. What does a day look like for you? <laughs> Average day. I, I probably try to fit too much into it. My husband often tells me that and he tells me to pick two things. Um, and then when I get to the end of the day, reflect on you know, the two things that you actually managed to achieve. Because usually you jam pack the day and then are disappointed when you can't do everything that yeah. you probably should have tried to fit in a week, not in a day. I'll 
I'll get up, um, I'll do my 20 minutes of meditation. What time? Uh, this is a, an interesting question I find for high performers. Yeah, usually it depends on um, what time I've gone to bed. We're trying to go to bed a bit earlier. Sleep would have to be the number one thing for me that if I get right, um, I'm performing well as a mother, as an employee, as a partner and as a peer. So if I've gone to bed early, I'll be up at five and I'll do my 20 minutes of meditation. If it's 5.30, I've then got, you know, a good hour to go and do some exercise, muck around with the kids that generally get up about six and, you know, have an amazing start to the day and then I'll usually roll into emails around the 7.30, 8 o'clock mark yep. um, at home a lot at the moment with COVID. So that's been really nice because we're in the house and you get to spend time with the family, do that and then... Tap out at about five five thirty for bath time with the kids, which I've really tried to be present for and give my husband a bit of a break. He does an amazing job. We've got a two and a half year old and a five month old, and you know he really, I wouldn't be able to do all the things that I do if it wasn't for him. Wow, I was thinking you were going to say you, yeah, work until eleven o'clock at night and out of kilter and. I try not to, Ollie. I've definitely had those days and, you know, in all of my roles over the years, there's been times when I do get out of whack. Funnily enough, if I sit on my emails till 11 o'clock at night, the next day won't be quite so good because I haven't had really good sleep. I haven't had time with the family. And so then you start to really, your ego gets in the way and starts to tell you that you're doing a pretty ordinary job of being a mum, being a partner work gets a little bit manic and then your your team start to deal with the not so fun Anna rather than the you know open positive fun Anna and so yeah it's us over performers we probably need to check ourselves regularly to go do I really have my priorities right and do you really need to do that email you know sometimes I'll be sending emails at 10 o'clock at night and I'm like why am I doing this it doesn't need to go now Um, and I think it's because you're on the hamster wheel and you feel good ticking items off like nothing feels better to clear your inbox uh is it the most important thing you should be doing right now probably not Mm. food for thought i want i want to jump back to your earlier years so today you're one of the most prominent people in australian agriculture a, a woman who's really paving the way for so many others but flicking it back what was anna like as a kid what were you interested in anna as a kid a lot of people are probably sales of pain in the ass uh (laughs) I have been passionate about ag my whole life and a lot of that stemmed from my grandfather uh, who had a farm in the Western District at a place called Tattyoon and my weekends and childhood was spent there. I think I thought I was going to take over the farm one day. He's got four kids and a hell of a lot of grandkids so that was clearly never going to be the case but it it was my happy place and I used to take my friends up there for a weekend and have fond memories from as early as I can remember, of mushrooming in the paddocks, um, playing in the wool shed in the wool, playing with wet grass on the electric fence and, like, (laughs) trying to get zapped and just, you know, mucking, learning how to ride the posty bike, learning how to ride the horse and cart, learning how to ride horses uh, and learning a lot about animal husbandry, particularly sheep. Um, Yeah, it was was a pretty special place for me. But I, I was always a bit of an achiever. I was good at academic work I was good at sport I was a rower and volleyballer and netballer and and all of that but I was also pretty good at playing up uh so I I was you you either loved me or hated me if you were a teacher and (laughs) you you had you had to have a bit of naughtiness in you to love me but yeah always been a bit of a a high performer and pretty driven like like to be the best or to be doing the best that I can be did that come with a lot of pressure on yourself 
It does. Still does. It'd be the biggest thing that I need to work on is is dialing back performance and you know giving myself a break. Uh, it would be my number one priority. So you go through school, overachiever. You get towards the back end. What what were you doing? Or was, what were you looking to do? Yeah, so I, I was a massive fan of CSI. A few people would have heard this story before, like crime scene investigation. And yeah. I was going to be a criminal lawyer and a forensic scientist. And I was going to go and solve amazing homicides. Don't know where, but... Um, New York, probably. Yeah, possibly New York. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I before I went to uni, I went off um, Jillarooing at Berry Jerry Station near Wagga for a few months and... I think I could have stayed there and dad sort of gave me a little bit of a poke and said, hey, I think you should get off to uni and, you know, I'll help you out on a few things if you if you go back now. So the, the carrot there, I, I went back to uni and studied law science and um, really enjoyed it. But there was something missing and I was always aspiring to go jillarooing. My uncle went jackarooing on Mullabulla Station back in the day um, when it really was the Wild West and I used to hear stories about him and how he ended up in the Wyndham Hospital and ch- after riding bulls and things like that. And so I got to a point where I was like, mm, McLeod's daughter's moment. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to head to the Territory and, and see what it's all about. And I think I thought it was going to be just like McLeod's daughter's and it wasn't. <laughs> what was it like up there? Um, well, you know, I packed up Dad's Nissan Patrol that he lent me um, with my dressage saddle and, and headed north. I, I was a real Victorian, right? I'd done pony club, I'd done hunting, show jumping, eventing, things like that. Um, chased my grandpa's cattle and sheep around, you know, massive herd size of maybe 20. And, yeah, we arrived up there and it was the last frontier, you know. I, I was a long way from home. Everyone was in Western saddles that I didn't even know how to do the girth up on a horse. Um, and um, it was a bit of a rude shock, but it was fun. And I, I, I lent into that and, and learnt a lot. There were tough days, but it was a bloody marvellous place. Is there still aspects of that that you reflect on fondly now but actually shape who you are today? Oh, absolutely. I mean, at the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander workers that worked with us there um, – learning about landscapes and noticing things. They were wonderful teachers. And, yeah, I mean, nothing beats a, a hard day's work where you've had, you know, lunch under the canter, sitting in the shade, had a bit of a snooze and you've got that really red dirt and smell of dust up your nose and um, you feel good at the end of the day. You've, you've sweated, you've worked hard, whether it's, you know, mustering a mob of cattle or working them through the yards or looking back at a fence line that you've been building, there's a real, I think, element of being with nature and that one with nature and it's a, an amazing place. It's, if you haven't had an opportunity to get up to the Territory and have a look around, it's a pretty special place. The real Australia. Yeah, it is. And it is the real Australia. It's it's a different world. You know, I was up there for oh, the best part of six years and I, I don't recall ever picking up a mobile phone. I was not on the internet very often. You know, you really were living there in the presence of it all it was hard work too um yeah but there's probably just a little bit missing I think at one stage you know and that's when I ended up leaving um I realized that there was something else that I needed to be chasing wasn't sure what it was but so there was a a little hidden aspiration there somewhere yeah I think so so I, I I did a teaching degree a bachelor of primary and secondary whilst working in the stock camps and 
Um, after studying? After studying science law. Um, and I then decided I was going to live in the Territory for the rest of my life. And I didn't think I should be a ringer for the rest of my life. So I thought I'd do a teaching degree because, you know, there's lots of remote communities and places where I could teach while still living up there. And I started teaching um, in Kununurra first, which was wonderful, in, in the primary school there. And then I went to teach in Elliot in um, just south of Newcastle Waters there, halfway between Darwin and Alice Springs. And that was an eye-opener. Where did you go from teaching? <laughs> <laughs> Why teaching or where? See, I, I had this um, preconceived idea, which is a lesson one, assumptions. See, I just thought you must have gone from working in the stock camps and kind of floated the idea or had the opportunity to jump into um, the ag business in some capacity. Yeah, so I'm not a planner, Ollie. So I I'm, I follow my nose, uh, the things that I'm interested in and get passionate and excited about. And so I was working in the camps. Um, at that stage, I finished my teaching degree when I was the stud registrar of Newcastle Waters. So uh, that's the world's the, – the largest Brahmin stud in the Southern Hemisphere. And so we were – looking at how do we measure and manage our herd more proactively and productively. We were working with Livestock Exchange, a software company that were looking at how they build um, on-farm herd management systems to give you decision, you know, data decision, driven decisions right there, crush side, as you're working with those animals. And um, I was teaching because I actually really enjoyed sharing knowledge and, and teaching something that I think, who knows, maybe I'll go back to it, but it's actually been a, a skill that's helped me with my broader employee base over the years in thinking about, you know, there's different ways to deliver messages to everyone and people learn really differently. Some of us are hands-on, some of us are visual, some listen, some need to read. And so it brought a a real um, tool, I think, to my toolbox in how I help build capability in teams. But, yeah, I was sitting there doing the stud side of things. Um, I'd married a cowboy and things were all roses until they weren't and – we decided to part ways and it was a tough time for me. I was, I still reflect back on that and for me it was probably the big first big real hiccup in my life. I'd been successful at nearly everything I'd ever done and suddenly I was getting divorced and you know, I come from a traditional family where, you know, marriage is forever and, you know, no, no pressure from my family or anything but for me, myself, I put a lot of pressure on myself and was a bit ashamed that I hadn't been able to make it work and so packed up my bags and moved to Brisbane. And, you know, in some respects I probably didn't go home because I was, I was ashamed back to Victoria. I went to Brizzy and I was very fortunate to get a job with a guy called Gary Edwards who had a business called Livestock Exchange, which is where I got into the ag tech space. And you know, we, were, we were transforming industries and he certainly has been the, the brainchild of a lot of industry transformation around sale yards and the national livestock integrity systems and the like. So there's a few... Um few little dots that started to connect, even like... Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported? Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low-cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. 
You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. Underneath the service that you didn't see, you are using Livestock Exchange on farm. What was it like when the opportunity came to step into that business going from the knowledge that you actually had? How did, how did that set you up in what you were doing? So I had a lot of physical knowledge around you know the practicalities of how a software system needed to work if it was going to work alongside you in the yards so that was really helpful uh, I didn't know a lot about tech though and you know dad and I had a bit of a chuckle when I took the job and he said geez the only thing you knew how to do when you were at uni was accidentally delete your hard drive <laughs> <laughs> and and he was right I didn't really know and I went into the customer support space initially and to say I was a pain in the ass to the other developers would be an understatement because I didn't really know how to fix things. Um, but, you know, as the industry, when I was dealing with the sale yards, often the phone call that would come in at 11 o'clock at night or at 4 o'clock in the morning because they'd start weighing cattle and there'd be a panic because the printer wasn't working or the NVD scanner wasn't working or the computer wasn't working. And nine times out of ten, you'd ask a few questions and you might say, okay, can you? I'm sorry I have to do this, but let me just talk through is it is the printer plugged in and they get a bit antsy and yes do you think i'm stupid okay is it turned on what do you mean is it turned on well like is the power switch turned on and go silent for like 15 seconds and they say it's fixed (laughs) 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 and you know that um i suppose the panic that comes with tech right sometimes means that you're not thinking straight and um that was something that you know I, I learned a lot about there as well is you know slow down and just go through the basics and and don't panic because they'd usually have a mob of cattle that need to be getting weighed and as soon as they're late then everyone else is is late and it cascades on and you're playing in unfamiliar territory so yeah it was a, a new experience and and I really had to change the way I operated as well having come out of the stock camps where it was a tablespoon of cement and harden the f up um, <laughs> into you know a world where you're working a lot closer with people and, and need to, I suppose, be a bit more vulnerable and open and less tough. Off of that, so your your career has really been, I'll say, at the frontier of different industries. So Livestock Exchange with that digitisation of the red meat sector, then Auctions Plus, similar, started off as the online sale yard to the business it is today, which we're both... Um, familiar with then AACO but you you step in and now Greenstock but you step into businesses in these change phases so do you do you find comfort in the discomfort of the unknown no Ollie it's quite the opposite and I think I'd say yeah I love transformations and I'm all about change and from a young age I've always been taught that you can do it better there's, there's always something that you can do better. Probably, I'm probably overperformer in that space and need to wind it back a bit. But that's been something I've always done. Uh, it's not comfortable. You, know, it's you know, I think it's a bit like uh, having a baby. You, you go through the discomfort of the forty weeks, and then you go through labour, and then you get the baby at the end, and you're like, forget about all the tough stuff. <laughs> and I often reflect back, you know, on on livestock exchange and on auctions plus, and. It, it all is a really wonderful memory. If I stop and really lean in and start to remember some of the challenging times, you know, my first year at Auctions Plus, there was plenty of tears. There was plenty of being told everything that we were doing wrong, whether it was from farmers, from agency, from buyers. We, you know, we had to start on how do we build trust? How do we set the T's and C's and 
hold a hard line at the same time as please people and for being an ultimate people pleaser you can't you actually can't please everyone and that was something I had to learn to reconcile with so I I often talk about the best things I've ever done in life were the ones where I was so scared standing at the edge of that cliff and had to go well this feeling that means it's something I need to do and you know that brave or courageous moment that you step into it and you have to probably keep reminding yourself because you drink from the fire hose and it's tough. But the light's at the end of the tunnel and change isn't easy. And if you're not getting that friction and you know discomfort from yourself and, and the team and the broader industry, well, then you're not really changing things. The trick is to make sure that you get through it whole yourself and also that your team does. Did you come close to slipping up, falling over and I'll say throwing in the towel, but as in the, the, the darkness that comes with that? Oh, absolutely. I, I still get that now every now and again. I And slipping up, well, you know, you, I made decisions with, that weren't the right right decisions over the over the years and you've got to own that, apologise, course correct, move on and, and apologise because it's important for other people to see that failing's okay. If you're not failing, you're not trying hard enough and you're never going to get it 100% right and if you're trying to polish it to perfection all the time, you'll miss the opportunity. So, yeah, I, there's lots of failures I've had and I've learnt from all of them and that's that's probably the important thing. And I think that's probably the piece which, like us on the outside observing you, like the last five years your career has just been, boom, one CEO role into high-achieving COO of a publicly listed company onto managing director of Woolies Red Meat and Pork Business. Like, it... It, it's crazy looking on the outside what that, that five-year period has, has been like for you. But that ride, what <laughs> – plus – actually, plus two kids. So your life has changed so much in the space of five years. Yeah, two kids, COVID, pandemics, environmental challenges. You know, the, I'm so lucky that we've got the kids. That was a bit of a journey in itself. So both our kids are IVF babies and we'd pretty much reconciled ourselves to the fact that it might not be going to happen – um, and have a very large Rhodesian Ridgeback George, who's our first child. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, that journey was a wild ride too. And, and and something we talk about, and my husband and I share that with a lot of people because it's actually a common story for a lot of people that getting getting pregnant and having kids is not as easy as it should be. And I think it's really important to talk about because there's a lot of people suffering in silence in that space. And, you know, we were fortunate that it worked for us. And I'm so fortunate because... Being a mother has actually brought a much softer side out for me and a more vulnerable side that's allowed me to realise, you know, how tough it is for parents. Um, I was so judgy before I had kids around what people could and should do and, you know, they're a real leveller. They're also so special. So it has been a bit of a ride. I've forgotten what the question was though. Ollie, where were we heading on this one? No, yeah, it was around so the the five-year trajectory. Uh, So... Unplanned. I follow my nose. I've never had, you know, long-term plans ever. Often people go, tell me about your five-year plan or your ten-year plan. I don't have one. I really focus on what's exciting me at the moment and nose to the grindstone, right or wrongly. We, my husband and I do write at, at New Year's every year. We write sort of our manifestations or what we want to do for the next 12 months. And if you have something on that list two years in a row, you have 24 hours to enact it the following year. So... Um, otherwise you lose it and you're not allowed to not allowed to do it so we do that and we also occasionally spend time writing about what we'd like to be doing in in two years time and what that looks like 
and that helps us make big decisions. So staying in Brisbane was one where we, we wrote down and, and then read to each other what we thought we'd be doing in two years' time and the things that were important to us was being able to be near the bush, getting out on our mountain bikes with the kids, building confidence and um, vulnerability in our kids. Um, I often talk about Jack, our son. I really want him to be a quietly confident human that's kind and, you know, if we if we get that right as parents, I think um, we'll have done a well, uh, an amazing job. But, yeah, the last five years, so I left Auctions Plus. It was probably the hardest decision to do and I was both very, very pleased but also really, really sad when I closed the door and walked out of there. The team probably didn't notice I'd gone and they'd laugh and say <laughs> that's not true. But they were set up for success and I actually managed to help them all develop and leave the business in a space where, you know, internally Angus could step into the CEO role. Ken stepped up, you know, as his, his wingman and right-hand man in the IT space and, you know, they've gone from power to power. And, you know, that was a really proud and sad moment at the same time. Uh, Mark Allison, who's one of my mentors and has always been a real advocate for my career path, had given me a gentle nudge and said, you know, go and do operations in a publicly listed company the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to learn something and you know it it really was a ride and I did learn a lot and then same deal again you know an opportunity came up and I got tapped on the shoulder for the the green stock job and when I sat down with Hugh at AACO and told him about it he was very much the same and said you know this is a huge opportunity for you to step out go get it and you know and we were both sad that I was finishing at AACO but in the same breath you know he really was supportive of my career development. Tell me on that I was I wanted to ask you a question around mentors, but actually I'm going to flip it. When it comes to your bosses, Hugh or Mark, how important was communication? But like, what did you learn from being open and honest and vulnerable with them in terms of where you're at and what you wanted to do? I think it's critical to have an open and honest relationship and it's something I look for. So when I don't have it, I struggle. I've been really fortunate over my years that I have had great bosses and, and great chairman of boards that, you know, I've been reporting up into and you, you build that relationship and it has to be built on trust. It has to be two-way and if it doesn't work, you shake hands and, and head in different directions. I think you learn a lot from each other and you take away the good and the bad and I've learnt lots from great bosses and I've learnt probably even more from not-so-good bosses. Yeah, plenty of learnings. Well, I, I reckon I want to jump into the grain stock business. So... You mentioned um, green stock is a part of all these. It's the red meat, beef and lamb and pork side of what, what I found interesting doing a bit of reading. So that side of the business is the second highest volume products that are going through Woolies. Yeah, you mentioned that. I don't know. I don't know if that what that I have, don't know that fact, but yeah. We so we are essentially the standalone red meat. So pork, beef and lamb. Some of us don't include include pork in red meat, but it actually is supply chain that feeds the 1200 Woolworth stores around Australia uh, interestingly we do an individually tailored order every single day for those stores to get you know the freshest produce on the shelf for our customers and coming into the retail world from the other side of the fence has just been such an eye-opener as to the hard work and the partnership that goes on between teams in our end-to-end supply chain is quite phenomenal particularly coming in mid-COVID and learning the ecosystem tell me about that because what we saw as consumers walked into the supermarket and it was fairly confronting there was not a lot of food in multiple areas we'll forget the toilet rolls for the minute but food 
Um, what was actually happening behind the scenes there? So I can only talk to what was happening in the meat space and some of the challenges from a supply chain perspective that were happening in waves, whether it was labour shortages or the restrictions that were put around primary processing facilities, around the number of workers we could have in in the um, facilities or just general you know, costs and challenges that were building up throughout the supply chain. It was almost like playing whack-a-mole. You'd get one thing started, sorted and only to have another one rear its head. And what was actually so amazing was the team and the experience that I was fortunate enough to have around me that knew how to lean in and, and weather the storm. And you know, we have very, very strong partnerships with our farmers, our primary processors, our secondary manufacturers, and then the Woolies internal businesses such as Primary Connect that do our logistics and then the frontline workers, our stores, like, wow, the lengths that those guys went to to make sure that there was food on the shelves and that our customers were, were safe when they went into stores and looked after, it was mind-blowing, Ollie, really mind-blowing. And I felt pretty small, you know, I was learning I was supposed to be in charge or the leader of the meat space and you know I got surrounded by people who'd been doing this for over 20 years and they really picked me up and helped me understand what I could be doing to support them but also led the way in making sure that we we did our best to keep the shelves as, as stacked as possible. It's a hell of a learning curve. It's something I've always wondered. Like, what does this? What does it look like when a CEO starts in the business? Like, I know everyone else goes through initiations, but do you guys go and work on the floors and, and understand what it's like in store? Yeah. So Woolies is the best place I've ever been to with regards to onboarding. Um, I did my first week. Welcome to Woolies in the Ascot store in Brisbane. Uh, Quentin, the store manager there, kindly inducted me into what happens in a store and it's huge. Um, So I was stacking shelves, I was learning about how our replan systems work and the importance of good process so that it's automatically ordering and making sure our shelves are filled but also not overstacking which then has impacts on how we order but also on the quality of the product and you know if it's in the refrigeration system you need it to be set up properly so that it's getting you know the right air going through it and we also had um, a process in the Ascot store on Wednesdays, which is walk at Wednesdays, which is where you walk around the store and you make sure that everything's fresh and looking good and facing the customer and you pick up any rubbish that's on the floor. And, yeah, it, it, the end result is I walk into that store and, you know, you feel really proud about what it looks like, but it also – everything looks delicious. Yeah, throw on the apron and you're never too big to be – Oh no! It's it's so important, and I think that's something I actually learned from my dad: the the importance of rolling up your sleeves and and learning a business from the ground up. I'm not a retailer, and I've never been in the retail world. So, the most important thing I can do now, and and what I'm still doing, is is spending time on the ground, learning and listening, and and understanding from those that are the experts in the game that have been doing it forever and. That's how you, you get all the ideas too. They, they often come from the floor and the people who can see things that you don't see when you're sitting you know, up above. So I'm a big believer in walking supply chains and listening and understanding to what's working, where the challenges are and the roadblocks. And, and a good leader, that's your job. You get the roadblocks out of the way and you let the people run. Tell me on the, the supply chain piece and roadblocks and other things. So I could walk into – I was down in well, – I spent 
I just basically followed lockdown. So I went from Melbourne to Sydney and but I could walk down into a local butcher shop and I could see meat there, but I could walk next door to any supermarket and there wasn't meat there. Like is that rigidity of the supply chain that because of the size and scale that you guys need to operate, is it sustainable? I think it was built because it is sustainable, Ollie. Um are we reassessing how we get more agility and flexibility into the meat supply chain? Absolutely. And that's essentially why Greenstock was set up in some ways is we, we don't just serve the retail stores. They are by far our biggest customer and a really, really important one and we're fortunate to have that core to then leverage off. But we also look at our international, our wholesale domestic and food services markets as well because they're a really important factor for how we balance the carcass and there are a lot of cuts in, say, a beef product that don't go into retail that need a home and if we can find the best home for them, that then helps us manage the affordability of products in store but also give farmers other options and other markets to tap into. Um, With regards to Flex, you know, as COVID came in, the team were really innovative as to how we could flex and look at going direct to store or from processing facilities to store and stand up things quickly. And and we did try to do a few of those things. Some worked, some didn't work quite so well. And it is something that we're looking at now, you know, how do we make sure we have those those that agility to move in the same way that a small independent butcher shop can, you know, go straight to the farmer's markets, buy their product and, and whack it in the store. Um, how do we have our cake and eat it too? So balancing the just-in-time supply chain, which is efficient and effective with the just-in-case supply chain holding a bit more inventory in the right places. But getting food fresh to our customers is really, really important as well. So lots of trade-offs and lots of learnings. I suppose we're lucky that we get the opportunity to have a bit of freedom in a framework at Woolies where we go, well, let's inspire or reimagine the way we do things and and chip away at it. I think um, when I think of the supermarkets and – like I'm constantly thinking about it in this ag space. There's like the utopia which you like if if you could click your fingers and wave the wand and the world looked like this, it'd be fantastic. But like the reality is that the vast majority don't know the stats, but the vast majority of Australians they're concerned with cost of living. Um, they want cheap, affordable, convenient food. Like it's the the role that particularly say in meat. And I I learned this when I went on on the feedlot, and it was like, well, why do we need feedlots? And for numerous reasons, but to get cost-effective protein to people it's like you can look around the world but actually in Australia there's a lot of people who are really struggling. Yeah the importance of getting delicious nutritious and affordable product to the shelf is critical and we believe that it's important to give our customers choice too so I think you you have your your value premium your mix of products and and looking at what suits our different consumers and some consumers want to shop really sustainable and are willing to pay a premium for that and others are focused on making sure that they get the most nutritious and healthy food on the table to feed their family at the right price. So we have to take all of that into consideration. Off the back of that, we around conscious consumerism and meat producers are getting – they're under the spotlight when it comes to their role environmentally. So what, what do you see as the strengths and the role of graziers and farmers – in this changing landscape around climate? I think the biggest opportunity is to recognise all the great work that we've been doing over the last 200 years. Farmers have sustainability in their DNA 
and for them to run a commercial operation, they have to be sustainable. They have to be looking after their landscapes, their ecosystems, their animals, their grasses, their waters. Otherwise, they won't be here tomorrow. And so I think it's really important to recognise the good stuff that we have done and, and then people like yourself looking at how we start to tell those stories through the supply chain all the way to the consumer so that we recognise the good stuff that's happening. I think we also then need to look at how do we improve and, and at what rate do we improve and what's the low-hanging fruit. You know, Carbon's a really interesting one at the moment where we do need to lean into it and there's no point fighting it. You know, Look at taxi drivers and Uber. You kept coming, stop yelling at them and, and start thinking about how we come together. And our industry, which is traditionally quite fragmented, has an opportunity to unite and unite with the likes of Woolworths and, and Greenstock who want to lean in and partner and learn about how we can support and help decarbonise our beef supply chains. I've got two questions I want to finish on with you. Um, one comes off the back of that. So you mentioned around telling stories and so... Uh, or maybe it's actually three questions, but uh, <laughs> so I won't take too much more of your time. But that's all right. Um, I got asked by Great Rap the other day, who are an awesome Australian business making plant based cling wrap. How do you think an Australian business should communicate what they do to the rest of the world? Oh, there's lots of different ways. I mean, I, we can talk operationally or we can talk messaging, but Australia is clean, green, and a pretty special place to be living. So I think leaning into that is is really important. I think sharing our stories of our farmers is, is a really important thing to be doing and being proud of what we do. I think, yeah, I, I don't know if I've answered that one very well for you, Ollie. No, that's good. <laughs> I think it's something I'm introducing where it's like, so I know who some of the future guests are, but I want to build this bank of questions from guests who have come on and what... So for you, what's a question which you'd like me to ask of a future guest? can be anything. Uh, so what's really important to me is how you bring people together to create a North Star or a common goal to make the place a better world. And so the question I'd be asking is what are you doing to help make the world a better place? Wow. <laughs> Off the back of that. Because I think that's going to be a you're huge gonna, I hope question. you're not going to flip it on me. No. <laughs> That'd be good. No, ask everyone. What's your, you get the chance to go and talk to year 10 students about a career in agriculture and why it's something they should consider. What's your advice to them? Year 10, it's tough, isn't it? I don't think I had any idea what I was going to be doing in year 10 except for a lot of pressure that I had to be doing something good. So my message would be, it's all going to be okay. You know, you, you'll find the right thing for you and it, and it needs to be something that you're passionate about and something that you love. Agriculture is not just something for the dumb kids. You know, back in, in my day you didn't do the ag classes because it was perceived to be a bit subpar. My career has been in agriculture and has been the most fulfilling career that I could possibly have ever dreamt to have and I have got the opportunity to do everything. I've met some of the most amazing people in the world and they're dealing with the most complex systems and problems that we will ever need to solve, whether it be food security, water supplies um, and how we make the planet better for future generations. So ag, mate, that's the, it's the only thing I think. 
That's incredibly powerful, and I think you've answered your own question too. <laughs> Anna, thank you so much for chatting about everything. I think we've covered a lot of ground over the last hour or so, but thank you so much for taking the time and sitting down and being a guest because you're someone who I've really admired and yeah, have loved the chance to sit down and ask you those questions one-on-one that I've been wondering for a long time. <laughs> thank you, Ollie. I feel like we have covered a lot of ground. Um, it's been a pleasure and you yeah. I'm just like everyone else. We're here to look at how we do things better. So I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thanks, Anna. If you enjoyed our chat today, we would absolutely love for you to hit follow on your favourite podcast app, wherever you're listening to us from. We've got some absolutely cracking episodes coming up. We've got the team from Great Rap. We've got Olympia Yaga, Prue Bonfield. Geez, I better think there's a few more coming up. We'll get them covered in the next few weeks. We're really excited that Evoke Ag is coming back to 2023. It'll be held on the 21st to the 22nd of Feb in Adelaide, South Australia. If you're interested in attending the two-day full-scale global event or partnering, visit evokeag.com. You can find out more details. If you're enjoying our conversations, make sure you head over to our socials where we starting to share a few snippets of the different conversations, what happens behind the scenes, some of the laughs and light-hearted moments and everything else that goes on. Look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane. We'll see you next week.